This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. I mean, your party should be public education. You're running as a public education advocate, whether that's blue, red, or green, or other. Teacher protests continue in states across the country. Can teachers be a political force in the 2018 elections? Our teachers say, watch out. Plus, everyone is worrying about Facebook, but our teachers let us in on a little secret. Kids aren't using Facebook anyway. And the latest scores for the National Assessment for Educational Progress are out. Cue the hand-wringing from policymakers and the eye-rolling from teachers. All that plus kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Lou Ann Fox, what do you teach? I teach high school English. Rebecca McIntosh, what do you teach? I teach elementary students at an alternative school. And Jason Staliga, what do you teach? I teach honors and AP science here at a high school. All three of them are educators at public schools or public charter schools in the Kansas City metro. We are also joined by a guest for this first segment. He's Democratic State Representative Brett Parker. He represents Kansas's 29th House District here in suburban Kansas City. And he's also a teacher. Brett Parker, welcome. Glad to be here. Thanks. In recent weeks, teachers in Oklahoma, Kentucky, and Arizona have carried out protests and strikes asking for higher pay and more spending on public schools. And the backlash to those labor actions is taking on, shall we say, a more strident and combative tone. Here is Kentucky Governor Matt Bevan on a recent Friday after thousands of teachers in his state rallied at the state capitol to, among other things, denounce a bill that would affect teacher pensions. How many hundreds of thousands of children today were left home alone? I guarantee you somewhere in Kentucky today a child was sexually assaulted that was left at home because there was nobody there to watch them. I guarantee you somewhere today a child was physically harmed or ingested poison because they were home alone, because a single parent didn't have any money to take care of them. I'm offended by the idea that people so cavalierly and so flippantly disregarded what's truly best for children. We will talk about that. These teacher strikes, rallies, and protests have been multiplying, but it's unclear if any of these most recent actions have resulted in the type of convincing, clear-cut victory achieved earlier this year in West Virginia. A statewide teacher strike there forced the state legislature to give raises to all public employees and is widely credited with sparking this current moment of teacher activism. Teachers are still clearly angry and frustrated in many places and are gaining some concessions from reluctant governors and lawmakers. But can that energy be sustained? Are there limits to what teachers can demand? And in a midterm election year, how should teachers engage politically. I know we want to talk about what Matt Bevin said in Kentucky, but I do want to start with Oklahoma. Teachers there are some of the lowest paid in the country. That state had trimmed education spending by nearly a third over the past decade. Teachers started out wanting $10,000 raises, $200 million more pumped into public schools to make up for past cuts, a total package of spending that topped $3 billion by some estimates. And after a nine-day walkout, they left with lawmakers giving them about $480 million in total, enough for the average teacher to get a $6,000 raise next year. It was, in fact, the same deal the legislature agreed to give them before the walkout. So my question is, in Oklahoma at least, was this a win for teachers or should they have gotten more? 
this was a huge win for teachers. I'm so proud of everybody that took part in. They walked across the state. They came together at the Capitol. Yeah, well, let me let me push here a little bit because you saw in West Virginia, teachers kind of, if you want to use the metaphor, stuck to their guns a little bit and 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 would not leave, would not stop their very coordinated statewide action until they had a bill signed, had the governor guarantee that's what they were going to get. You could argue Oklahoma left. Uh, left some things on the table. I think you run into trouble when you start comparing the states and the labor actions in the different states because the issues are, while similar, they're working under very different circumstances. West Virginia had a governor, had a legislature that stayed at the Capitol with the teachers and talked. In Oklahoma, we were dealing with, we, and I mean teachers we, were dealing with a hostile governor and a legislature that started to fool around with the schedule and weren't there to talk to us. They, they left. They started canceling sessions. It was not productive, and teachers knew that it would not be productive to stay out of classrooms. So they're turning their attention to the elections in November. They'll continue to work with members and with their communities. We should be clear that you are a member of the Missouri National Education Association. I also serve on the National Education Association board, and my face is flushed and my blood pressure is up, and I'm so excited about this topic, but you need to have me stop talking. Funny that you should mention that, um, very much the reasoning that Alicia Priest, the head of the Oklahoma Education Association, gave when this walkout was formally ended, though we should say there are some teachers in Oklahoma who are saying they will not stop at least their walkout, but the Oklahoma Education Association, the OEA, um, has ended the walkout, and this is actually what she had to say when that formally ended. In addition to making our case at the steps of the Capitol, we have the opportunity to make our voices heard at the ballot box. The state didn't find itself in a school funding crisis overnight. We got here by electing the wrong people to office. No more. We have created a movement and there is no stopping us. I wanted to bring Jason and, and Luann into this conversation as well. That harkens back to something that um, American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten said around this same time. She says a lot of people in these states where teachers are striking, including some of our teachers, voted for Trump. The not-so-sleeper issue in this next election is public education. Uh, for my teachers here at the table, do you agree? Is there teacher power, so-called, this year at the ballot box? Oh, I do. I, I believe absolutely uh, I think after Parkland, we had a uh, you had the group of students rising up, and I think the students, in many ways, have now motivated the teachers to step up as well. There are always fears you overplay your hand that you might lose public support if you're a striking teacher. We're starting to see some real pushback. Bevin's comments in Kentucky that I played earlier, Oklahoma Governor Mary Fallon likened striking teachers in her state to teenagers who asked their parents for a car and then are upset that they didn't get a nicer one. Who is winning the public relations battle here? And, and Rebecca, if you've, if you've calmed down and are ready to get back on the mic, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this I'm, one. <laughs> I'm ready, and I feel like first, as a native Kentuckian, I need to apologize for uh, Mr. Bevin because that is not the bluegrass spirit. I think you can't talk about teacher power you can't talk about teacher influence over policy unless you're talking about structures that are in place for teachers to bargain collectively. The states that we're seeing having this education spring, West Virginia, Kentucky, Arizona, Oklahoma, these are so-called right-to-work-for-less states, and they do not have the labor protections. They don't have the union protections that allow them to come to the table and negotiate the things they need to negotiate. Um, and so this is why it feels new. It feels exciting. But this is 
business as usual when you look at New Jersey, at UTLA, at Chicago, places where teachers bargain and bargain strongly. Uh, there are also potential trade-offs uh, when we're talking about more funding in Oklahoma in order to fund the money for teacher pay. Lawmakers are raising taxes, taxes on oil and gas, on tobacco, on motor fuels, on online sales. Some of these are regressive taxes, taxing the middle and working classes. In West Virginia, there were fears, still not sure if it will come to fruition, that that state would slash Medicaid in order to fund the pay raise for public employees. Um, This is especially where I wanted to pick Brett Parker's brain. If teachers demand more money, and this has happened in Kansas, teachers and parents in the state really demanding more money for schools, where will those funds come from? What is politically feasible? Well, I think this is one of those ways in which you're making your voice heard at the ballot box matters a lot because it's wonderful to get concessions or have success and getting more funding for schools. But if the people who even are willing to make those concessions fundamentally think that the best way to fund it is to hike sales tax on everyone, then you're going to have challenges there as well. We're also seeing, though, the federal tax changes affect states in odd ways, and you end up with a little bit more revenue there. There's a uh, court case about internet sales tax. Right now, states and local governments can't really collect on uh, internet sales tax, which not only punishes you know the uh, in-person stores that you go to in your community, it also deprives resources for things like public education and roads. So there, there are a lot of revenue streams that are not raising taxes on working families and, and the least among us. But yeah. you have to have policymakers who are willing to look at those sources. And, I, and I'm not saying that the, uh, the teachers in states that have been taking labor actions, I'm not saying their argument is this simple, but oftentimes when you see it you know, boiled down in the media, it kind of comes across as we want X amount of money. We want 500 million, we want 1 billion, $3 billion uh, to fund public schools. Um, is it as simple as that? Like we want this much, this much money, so now go and find it, you know, from the state legislator's perspective. I think it's easy to try and tiptoe around that, but at the end of the day, you you get what you pay for. And that's what, you know, we've had just another study in Kansas that basically said the more you invest, the better your outcomes will be. So if we as a state have decided these are the outcomes we're seeking, whether it's 95% graduation rates or students will be, you know, prepared for the 21st century jobs uh, at a whole nother level than we were expecting in the 1960s or 70s, then yeah, you, you're going to have to put the resources in to fund that. We have to view it as an investment, though, rather than an expense, because what we're doing is funding the future. And I don't know if it's possible to overfund schools, but, I mean, even even if it were, what what is the net result that the, you know, the custodial staff has a little bit more money in their pocket that they're going to spend in your neighborhood and in your community? It, this, this is not taking money out of the state and sending it somewhere where we're never going to see it again. It's an investment in our communities, and, and we see the long-term benefits of that both in the students and in our economy. Yeah. Well, I guess the kids will get smarter. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. um, to wrap up this conversation, what, what's, the, uh, what's the end game here? Where is this going? Where do you want to see this go? Again, in 2018, an election year, we've noted that Uh, um, A lot of the labor actions we've been discussing have been happening in politically conservative states, in red states. Um, It's been noted in a lot of media this seems to be or appears to be a pushback against um, generally conservative policies, cutting public funding. Where do you see this going in 2018? Where do you want it to go? I hope it continues to just raise the topic. I know we're going to see some action in Colorado this week. I mean, as the ideas spread, 
I hope I think uh, Oklahoma is on the right track to have educators running for office. I mean, your party should be public education. You're running as a public education advocate, whether that's blue, red, or green, or other. And I, I mean this respectfully, Rebecca. You've you've been around a while. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> um, do you feel, does this moment feel different for you, I guess, in terms of just the political engagement of teachers? It does. And I, I think Jason hit on it when he, he mentioned the Parkland kids. I think we've got a, a younger voice that we're hearing. I think people are wanting to be activists right now. Um, people want to be able to participate in a system that they're, some are angry about and some want to protect. I mean, either side of that argument, people want to be engaged and involved. Um, and the best thing they can do is, is be part of the process. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Well, Facebook is in major damage control mode ever since a data mining scandal came to light. The social media giant has admitted that up to 87 million users may have had their data passed off to political consulting firm Cambridge Analytica without their consent. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg was on Capitol Hill for two days of testimony recently. His time in front of the House elicited this exchange with Congresswoman Anna Eshoo, who represents a district in Silicon Valley. Was your data included in the data sold to the malicious third parties? Your personal data? Yes. It was. Are you willing to change your business model in the interest of protecting individual privacy? Congresswoman, we are, have made and are continuing to make changes to reduce the amount of no. data. Are you willing to change your business model in the interest of protecting individual privacy? Congresswoman, I'm not sure what that means. Now, Facebook's business model being, of course, that it makes billions and billions of dollars from advertisers and data firms, among others, who are greedy for information about us, Facebook's users. Well, people are pretty low on Facebook right now, but this latest controversy got us thinking from a teacher's perspective. Is Facebook a net positive or net negative for kids and schools? So let's start with the kids. There's all kinds of research out there tracking the pernicious effects of Facebook, social media writ large on kids. Studies at various times have shown that it hurts self-esteem, increases student anxiety, damages teenagers' ability to concentrate. Do you buy all that as teachers, Facebook's negative effects or social media's negative effects? It's impossible to have this conversation without sounding like the geriatric voice, like some of our representatives Get off my did. lawn. <laughs> exactly. So as the old teacher, I'm going to say, yes, these kids are on Facebook, on the Facebook all the time. And yes, it's negative. And that's how I feel like it when I talk about it. Because quite honestly, my kids are not on the Facebook anymore. Old people use it. Yeah, that's and, that's and what that, they would tell me. And that's an interesting point that we're going to get to. I, I just want uh, Jason and Luann to jump in. I mean, do you think Facebook overall net positive, net negative? Net neutral. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go back to what Rebecca said. I asked my students about yeah. Facebook. They said it's for old people. Yep. That was their quote. And uh, But what's interesting, if you think about Facebook, they bought Instagram. Mm -hmm. And so but because our students typically use other social media platforms as Instagram and Snapchat far more than they use Facebook, 
as far as I'm concerned, the profiles on Facebook are slowly dwindling mm-hmm. away for this younger generation. They're more in tune with uh, posting their stories and showing highlights of their life, not writing down, per se, what's happening with their world. I guess this is getting to the point. Do your kids care about privacy? Because this, is, this was the big focus of the Facebook conversation this past week in front of Congress, was that it, it, I think uh, people of our age and older see it as a great invasion of privacy. Do students see it that way? I'm not sure that kids today have grown up um, with an expectation of privacy. And I think that's maybe a way that they have, they, they are fundamentally different than we are because they're digital natives and they've grown up in an era where everything is accessible and information is right there instantaneously. I don't think that they have the same expectation that we grew up with that there are things that are private. Yeah. Is that necessarily a bad thing? I mean, I think maybe the flip side to that, you could say, well, they're more, they're more mindful of how to curate their lives. They're more, I think, in tune with how to present themselves publicly. But I think, I, I think it would be a stretch to say that, that they also that they don't have a conception of private and public self, right? Like they, they still have that, that conception, right? I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I. I don't know. I'm just trying to think if I was an adolescent in this day and age and I'm going to talk to a group of my close friends about something, what's the level of trust that my level, my group of close friends are not going to be Snapchatting that out and mm-hmm. um, poking fun in some way that, that, that goes... There's some real dangers yeah, there still. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Uh, we've been pretty negative about Facebook, um, as a lot of people have been recently. Still, on the flip side, it is a great organizing tool. You think about the recent student walkouts and the student mm-hmm. walkouts to come and the March for Our Lives events, largely organized on social media, including giant Facebook groups. Um, that is a positive of Facebook, right? I mean, that, that, that is still something that exists, that, that students are still using it for. I think that's the huge, the huge big idea of the social of the social media. I can't not do that with yeah. the article. Um, that connection piece, you know, where you can get communication from absolutely everywhere, where my kids can be connected through games and through Facebook and through Snapchat with kids across the country or kids out of the country, and they do that, you know, through their YouTube channels and things like that. So I think that is phenomenal and. Old people, I'm pointing to all of us at the table, we don't know, old people like me, thanks, um, don't know how to harness that yet. I don't know how to take advantage of that in a school context. Um, that That's new to me. And not, mm-hmm. a, not a bad thing, but I don't know how to use that to my advantage with little people. Our third and final segment before we get to kids these days... The National Assessment for Educational Progress, or NAEP, is given every two years to a small fraction of American school children in fourth and eighth grades for both math and reading. It remains the only nationally normed test that allows policymakers to compare student performance across states and regions. That's a big reason why it's often referred to as the nation's report card. And hand-wringing and worrying about the NAEP has become something of a cottage industry in education circles. The results of the 2017 NAEP are out, and this time is no different. The performance of American school children remained essentially flat from 2015, with only 8th grade reading scores showing slight statistically significant improvement. 
In the 1990s and early 2000s, NAEP scores went up steadily, and then in about 2007, they appeared to hit a ceiling and have not shown much movement since. Some education analysts are saying these latest scores are proof of a lost decade in American educational performance. Here are some numbers from the 2017 test. With the exceptions of Florida and California, no state showed market improvement in their NAEP scores. In fourth and eighth grades, the majority of students overall, well more than half, remain below what the test designers consider proficient in both math and reading. So I guess, should this bother us? That's my first question. Should we be worried? This does not bother me. Does this bother anybody? This doesn't at the table? bother me either. No. Mm-mm. Okay. Okay. Good. I just didn't yeah. want to be the. Does this bother you, Luann? Okay. How do teachers see the NAEP? I mean, I, I wonder. This is something that, like, every two years, people who write about education, education reporters, education analysts, say, like, oh, you know, it's this is. It's exactly that. It's this thing that comes up every two years. It makes it gets a lot of publicity. It's one more whack at at the teaching profession. Hey, you guys. Okay, go back to work the next day and don't be bad about. Don't feel sad about this. Um, it it really has n- no connection to what I do or what my colleagues do on a day to day basis. Um, it's it's a, a piece of news that happens f- regularly. And Jason I, and Luann, you agree? I do. I you know uh, I was reading through the state with six hundred thousand kids. They did and. Uh, they don't track the kids. So you have a group of kids in fourth grade, right. and then you have a group of kids in it's eighth different grade. different kids. They're yeah. different kids, and they say they norm it, but, you know, if you're looking, if you want to look for growth, you want to see how do those kids improve. And, you know, one of the pieces to think about is, you know, we have a high rate of mobility throughout the country. Uh, we have kids moving in and out of school districts. Therefore, they're they're getting different content and different instruction in, in multiple places and so when you, when you start to think about, all right, how are we going to measure growth, all right, and you have all these kids being transient and moving in, in and out of a school district, they may not be getting a consistent level of instruction necessary for growth. And the other thing to really think about here is, and I hate to think about the world, but, you know, most things go to a carrying capacity. We call it an S-curve. You know, you you start oh, right, a, Mr. Science. Yeah, you, call me that. Oh, let him go. <laughs> yeah. This is where you it started. You started a low point, and you go through this exponential growth because there's all these resources, so smaller population size, and then all of a sudden it starts to level out. And you know, I think about education. You know, you're going to have low kids. You're going to have high kids. You're going to have kids in the middle. And they talked about there was a, a little bit of disparity between the top 10 percent in growth and the bottom 10 percent in growth. But with that disparity, that, that will always happen every two years. There will always be a great deal of disparity. So if you have a lot of low kids and a lot of high kids, it's going to average it out. And you're going to reach a point where you're going to fluctuate, you know, like a sine wave over what is, what is a, a ceiling. So you're going to go up some years. You're going to go down some years. But for the most part, you're going to eventually level out. But there so, hasn't been any kind of movement the last 10 years. It's been mm-hmm. very kind of static. Which I think is which, a remarkable achievement given the widening income equality, mm-hmm. given the lost decade, air quotes, um, given So you actually the see the struggle, fact that it hasn't gone the, down. The, the fact, fact that it's, kind that of it's remaining level, level way yeah. to go people. Yeah, and I think schools were so focused on no child left behind that they were like gearing their instruction in a, in a, in a particular way in order to hit particular standards for their, their state. In, order in the early to, 2000s. In the early 2000s. But that, but that curriculum that was put in place in 2005 and 2006 for most schools is still pretty much put into place. And so right now, what, what, what I'm seeing, at least in the metropolitan area from the people that I know, is that we're starting to rewrite curriculum now 
in order to match the new standards that were put into place. So there really was, for the last 10 years, uh, a method of instruction that was designed and geared towards kids passing a particular assessment. And that, that may have led to a decrease in creativity or, um, uh, within the, the teachers or an emphasis to go above and beyond yeah. because school districts wanted you to meet a quote-unquote benchmark. And so, so that may have stifled the growth of our children in learning in fourth and eighth grade. So is there real actionable value in knowing NAEP scores? Is there something schools and individual teachers can do with this? I mean, I, I think NAEP serves an interesting purpose in all of their small subgroups. They're doing some really interesting studies of urban classrooms. They're doing some really interesting comparisons for LGBT kids. They're doing um, rural and urban. They're, they're doing some nice research, and the research is always good because you use that somewhere else. Um, and, and as a national snapshot, that can be helpful to direct other things. And now that you can break it out by state, that could be a helpful starting point for some states to do some work. Day to day, what I'm going to teach tomorrow, I don't have a connection yet. But I'm not in the research business either. So I leave that to people much smarter than me to, to publish that and, and translate it for me to make it useful for kids. But I, I think there's good information there. I, you know, it, it's a snapshot of a particular kid on a particular day. I don't know that it has wide-reaching implications. I like how you think central office can break down that data for us as teachers. That's <laughs> really cute. I did not cute. say central <laughs> office. <laughs> Be very clear. I did not say that. There was one bit of data that I did want to dig into before we go. Um, achievement gaps between the highest and lowest performing students are growing based on these latest NAEP scores. For both subjects at both grade levels, in fourth grade reading, for example, the gap between the top 10% and bottom 10% of students widened by four points. In fourth grade math, it was um, it grew by six points. In eighth grade reading, it widened by three points. In eighth grade math, by six points. So um, how troubling is that? Uh, and, and what might be behind that? Is that something that we should at least uh, raise an eyebrow at or keep our eye on? How much does that reflect the widening income gap? That's exactly I mean, that's, where I was that's the very anyway. first thing that I'm that I'm thinking about. It's like that's not really all that surprising, given that the difference between the haves and the have-nots is just getting greater. What would be school's so, response, if anything? That the achievement levels are growing because, as you as you might say, it might be reflective of, of wider social trends. Is there anything schools can do? No, because in a, I don't think because in a school such as the one that I go to, you're going to have your higher end kids that are always going to be able to have their parents give them programs and tutors and give them other experiences outside the classroom and give them wider exposure to life that that people um, who who are on the other end of the spectrum and who are just struggling to make ends meet just just can't do. Well, in two years, we can have a similar conversation. You know, I can tell you that the states that have the highest NAEP scores are the 10 states that have collective bargaining and strong labor protections for teachers. teachers so there is that. Teachers who are part of the policy conversation have students who succeed more. That was huh. an, an excellent way to tie it back to the first conversation mm-hmm. we had, Rebecca. I do a... what I can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, stay tuned. We're going to do Kids These Days after the credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. 
Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Rebecca... What are your kids into? Oh, my gosh. The weather in Missouri yeah, has been yes. a nightmare. We're on – it's like the 93rd day of January. <laughs> um, we had two days last week where it was warm and sunny and my students wore shorts. And shorts at school this week was miraculous. And we made the old jokes about where are the rest of your pants and – it was their shorts. bodies were moving, and they, it was something special. Well, shorts, a- and then it snowed the next day, and that's all over. <laughs> right, yeah. Jason, what are your kids into? Uh, it is the time for the NBA playoffs, and so our kids are constantly debating back and forth who's going to win the championship. Is LeBron, LeBron the greatest player in the world? How are the Celtics going to survive without Kyrie Irving playing? It's it's a nonsense. Sounds like conversation. you're getting into it too. Oh, yeah. I'm always into it. Yeah. <laughs> well, who are their picks for who's going to win? Uh, they they would they're gonna see Houston uh, beat Cleveland uh, in seven. Trendy, trendy mm-hmm. pick. Your kids are trendy. Go Warriors. Luann, what are your kids into? Well, I asked them actually. Um, <laughs> Let me guess. I'm, memes. They're into memes. Oh, well, they'll say dank memes. You know, because uh, that's a, a type. But that's um, but we're so over that because we know that. Um, I'm trying to get kids ready for the AP exam, so I literally had to ask them because my head is really down and uh, you know we're a month away, so to really get into it. But anyway, so I had to say, what do you do? And so they were telling me that they even have chats now um, digitally about how the, the conspiracy about the world ending on the 18th. Um, have you heard about this? And um, <laughs> No, it sounds like I should, though. No, no. I mean, a lot, a lot of my high school students are chatting about it. They're social, you know, whatever. They're, they're like the world is on April 18th, 2018. And uh, that seems to have what great is, interest to them. Do I'm you know what the sure origin why. of this is? Like what... No, I behind this. No, I didn't get of... it. No, but apparently that's. I mean, that's a that's a thing, um, and I I don't know about that thing um, because there's just so many of the predictions about the world ending and like whatever year, whatever. But there's something about April the 18th um, that seems to be very. I mean, it's immediate, but I mean, it seems to be very kind of very very interesting to them, and I just don't know if it really. Maybe unconsciously so, because they see their own mortality as a real possibility now um, in the wake of school shootings and whatnot. They're just more tuned into, like, things that are coming at the end or, like, what's going to be at the end. But, my God, this is a thing that they're they're in, into. You, you all were teaching during the uh, the Mayan calendar the thing, Mayans right? Was that, right. was that 2012? Mm-hmm. 2012? Right. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But the cartoons that accompanied that were <laughs> worthwhile, so... Well, I should say the 18th is only a day after this episode is supposed know. to post. So, I mean. So, I hope we're still here. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to our teachers this week, Luann Fox, Rebecca McIntosh, Jason Staliga. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, even if the world is going to end, be nice to your teachers. 